Welcome back to the Master Mentors podcast, Q&A episode eight. I'm here virtually sat with Luke. Luke, how are you? I am very good, sir. Excited to be back. And apologies for the delay, people. It's yeah, we've been a bit shit as of late. Uh, it's been a month since the last episode, so we probably uh, better should get back on this. It's been busy. It's been busy. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things have been happening, but we're back now with vengeance. Um, and we'll have regular Q&A episodes coming and some guest uh, interviews as well. So back to, uh, back to normality with um, mm. one a week or so. Mm. Um, how many uh, how many listens are we up to now? Um, pretty sizable amount, actually. We are at, and thank you very much for everyone who's listened, as I just put it up, we are at 77,000, which is pretty cool. Very nice. You guys are awesome. Very, very nice. Um, right, we've got a bunch of questions that we can run through this week, so we will get to it. Um, let's start with the uh, really serious questions, Luke. Yeah, so question number one. This is probably going to kick off in the most serious way a Q&A could kick off, so warning to everyone there. But um, this one's directed at Cal. Uh, Vibrams, what's the verdict? They're incredible. It's a pretty deep question, that. Um, well, I think... It does make you look like a bit of a unique specimen when you wear them. Um, but there will be premise in regards to um, your contact on the ground and floor or platform when you're training. And I know from my perspective, when I train in trainers, which I can't anymore, or wear trainers whatsoever, um, A, I guess you could call it like a, a limited ability to increase proprioception whilst I'm training and my ability to connect with tissues and just produce force from the floor is better with more contact there and no elevation through a heel or cushioning. Um, and B like even, even now I've found like when I put socks on, when I, when I put shoes on that aren't um, like facilitating toes being able to spread and the feet and the tissues within the feet being able to actually function properly. Like my feet just feel like crammed up and really uncomfortable. So uh, I remember when we went to Mauritius, I wore the Vibrams when we climbed up that mountain. Um, and when we came back, I wore Converse on the plane and my feet were fucked after like eight hours of wearing Converse. And most of the time I was sitting down and I climbed up a fucking mountain in Vibrams and I was absolutely fine. So um, I wear them. It's, I wear them a lot now. Like I don't like wearing shoes anymore. It's been it's been weird. You you own a pair. You don't wear them, do you? Yeah, I got some years ago, and I got a really shit pair, and they just don't look quite as cool as cow. And while they're pretty cool to as a functional piece of kit, it's also important that you look the part. And mine just don't look cool. <laughs> yeah. No, but the I think I'm probably going to invest again because obviously Cal and I, you know, we've presented alongside Chris Knott and Chris Knott's pretty big on all that um the function of the feet you know we ourselves are pretty big on the function of the feet and it logically makes sense to use something like that um and it's it's just you know you look at how people's feet are actually structured these days you know in terms of the the weird shape that they're all forced into where our toes are crammed together that isn't actually how feet are supposed to look that's like you know an adaptive uh, mechanism from wearing shoes for 
however long we've been wearing them and that's you know it's not necessarily the most you know functional position for the feet to be in and when we when we consider a lot of the issues that people have from a physiological perspective around the ankle the knee the hip you know quite often they can be traced back to some of the issues that are brought up from wearing shoes all the time so vibrams and generally being barefoot as often as you can are a pretty good thing to do so actually it was a pretty good question <laughs> yeah. but yeah any more any more thoughts on that um no we've uh, pretty much um pretty much covered it there while we're on that someone asked do your funky colorful pants increase mTOR absolutely you just have to take our word for that one yeah, yeah. we're actually currently both wearing them yeah and uh, you, you could uh, you could look for studies on that probably won't find any but anecdotally they work they do they're good enough for Dorian <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I think Ronnie Ronnie sported a pair, and that says it all. So yeah, has nothing to do with wanting to stand out and look cool or look different. Trust me on that. Anyway, down to the down to the nitty gritty. What's the start? Uh, where do we start? We've got fucking loads, mate. So yeah, we have a lot of questions. There's been some good questions. There's been some questions where you know, realistically, we can't. Hey, we, we might not be able to answer them fully in a Q&A, so we'll have to do whole episodes on them. And then also, as physique coaches and not medical professionals, we're not technically licensed to... Licensed or experienced to, um, to give uh, answers to those questions. Um, so an example being someone asked Cal, uh, where is it? Just find it. Going through the many, many. Um, where's the pregnancy one? Oh, there we go. When pregnant and training, what advice? For, uh, what advice for those past first trimester nutrition training wise? You know, we're not. Ten, I don't think we're allowed to, to give advice on that. Um, as much as it would be helpful for that individual, it would be. I think it'd be a bit reckless for us to offer advice on that. So, yeah. apologies on that. Um, and then uh, someone else asked, uh, so it's Savannah, a.k.a. the Plains of Africa, West of <laughs> asked, chronic stress, e.g. prep, and development of autoimmune diseases, prevention, question mark. Like, again, I've, I've said to her already, we're, we're looking to get someone who's actually experienced in that area to, to comment on that. Um, it's a very, very good question, and I think one that needs addressing, but as a as mere physique coaches, both of which have, have very little experience in that area, it would probably be a bit reckless for us to answer it. Indeed. So apologies. Apologies. It's yeah. a good question. Though. It was a very good question. Um, and then somebody does, like someone asked about an in-depth view on phase one, phase two, phase three, liver detoxification. I went through that quite um, in-depth with Ralph uh, on our last episode, um, which... We're, we're, I think we'll aim to get Brian Walsh on to go through that in even more depth, even though the one with Ralph was pretty epic. The one with Ralph was very practical. I think if you just want information on how those guys, how those phases work, um, we'll aim to get Brian Walsh on. Um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, we did go pretty deep with Ralph, so that was good. So, I mean, that kind of answers that one. Um, but then uh, I think kicking off properly, Cal can answer this question, which is, um, you guys speak a lot about actually concentrating during feeding in order to properly digest. Yes. Yes, we do. We do. We've got a, there's a, a pre-feeding checklist that will be sent out to the majority, if not all clients that will basically run through, um, you know, simple things that we can action day to day, pre, during and post meal to optimize digestive function, breakdown and absorption of food. Um, and the whole concept of like, the majority of our clients are going to be either busy working professionals or busy PTs who are chronically stressed or nearly chronically stressed. And that's why they're working with us. Very, very busy, uh, working long hours and rushed generally across the day. And one of the first things that gets compromised is it's not, it's not the caloric intake that's taking a hit. It's their ability to actually break down the foods in the first place and eat in a state where their body's in the capacity to actually efficiently break down the foods and benefit from them. So, um, the, the whole, the whole notion of being present and being conscious of the foods we're eating is we've got to think the correlation the brain has uh, and your like sensory system on breaking food down, the production of saliva, the distribution of, of pancreatic enzymes in the saliva to break down, time spent chewing, um, being conscious on a meal in, in a capacity where we're, we're drawing attention away from other things and away from other stresses and just being present in that moment is going to help as well. And like we, everyone's heard the whole concept of taking, taking meal time away from work time and like going away from your desk to eat or going outside of the workplace to eat. It's a similar concept where we're just trying to detach away from like sympathetically driven scenarios and into more of a parasympathetic state where digestive function is going to be more optimal. Mm, mm. I think, um, you know, you, people have heard Cal and I speak about um, the autonomic nervous system and kind of ensuring balance there. And when we consider the gastrointestinal tract and digestive function in general, like it's, it's entirely um, like mediated by parasympathetic activity. And, um, you know, when we consider that, we know that if we're in an overly sympathetic dominant state, we're going to have an impaired ability to... Um, you know, our digestive ability is going to be impaired due to like reduced blood flow and like Cal mentioned, reduced saliva, gastric secretions, pancreatic secretions. And then from a motility perspective as well, um, most of the, the guys that run that show are innovated by the vagus nerve, which is one of the key guys of the parasympathetic nervous system. So if that whole process is impaired due to increased sympathetic activity, just generally being stressed out, um, we know that our ability to process the food reading is going to be impacted and that's you know I've, I've, i say on the sheet um i don't know if this is a direct quote i can't remember but i say it a lot in check-ins that you know we need to approach our feeding practices with the same diligence with which we approach training um and all other aspects of our life and people don't really really do it that way but then we we consider a lot of the downstream effects that we can can arise from having impaired digestion and you're looking at things like increased inflammation to decreased uh, ability to synthesize neurotransmitters and enzymes, um, heightened stress response in general, many 
digestive complications that can lead to pretty horrible issues with like the body in general and like on that autoimmune thing i mean there's there's relationships there um and you know when we consider just every bodily process is kind of underpinned by our ability to absorb the nutrients we eat you, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to make the whole process of eating as effective as possible um and it's something we've kind of lost touch with but yeah very very good thing to well, question following on from that let me um set you up into uh the what because you i know you've been studying this a fair bit recently can pre-bed protein negatively affect sleep quality and then break onto that can pre-bed anything food wise negatively affect sleep quality yeah so i think the, the question was directly associated with protein right yeah it was yeah mm. uh, so the yeah and, and this is where for those that have listened to our episode on fasting and those that have studied circadian biology like Dr. Sachin Panda's work, he's like the leading guy in that. Um, he's, uh, you know, well, they, the, the world, the, the team of, of researchers behind that area have basically found that, you know, the body has these, these circadian rhythms and every, everything kind of is encoded in some way to these rhythms and they're kind of the light and dark cycle and external stimuli like temperature shifts, but it's, it's essentially time of day. Um, and when we consider, you know, gastrointestinal secretions like gastric acid, for instance, which is going to directly um, correlate with our ability to process protein, we know that in the earlier portions of the day and during wakefulness, we have a much higher secretion of gastric acid. And when we're asleep, that drops off pretty massively. Um, like there's one study that um, my good mate, Ryan Carter, um linked to me which is which i went through and, and that ties things together quite well but there's a lot on there a uh, lot on this out there but for those that are interested this one's called gastric acid secretion and sleep stages during natural night sleep and they basically looked at the differing stages of um uh gastric acid secretion across the essentially five stages of sleep so stages one two three four and REM sleep and they found that as you know as soon as sleep began basically after the onset of sleep, so I'll actually quote it because I've got it in front of me. After the onset of sleep, acid secretion dropped more or less sharply. Acid output in the first 30 minutes of sleep averaged over all stages of sleep was 31% lower than in the last 30 minutes of wakefulness. So we know that there's a massive drop immediately um, in, in acid secretion. So if we've just eaten, a lot of people do this in that last 30 minutes before sleep or even in the last hour, given that it takes like two to three hours for, for food to clear the stomach we know that we're asking our body either our body's going to have to adapt by keeping acid secretion higher um which it, it can do it prevent you from getting into those deepest stages of sleep or you know you're going to see a reduction in acid con uh, production and therefore your ability to process that food is going to drop down anyway and that's where you potentially see issues arise with that are associated with hypochloridia and slow gastric emptying and, and stuff like that um which we spoke about in our digestive episodes um but the you know it's, it's also found that when people woke up during the night um that was usually associated with higher levels of acid uh, secretion so it's kind of that those fluctuations can can be influenced by how close or the, the awakening scenarios that people often experience 
experiences in the night could be due to how they're eating. Um, and then when we're considering um, when people wake up in the morning, we see a pretty large increase in acid secretion. Back to that whole circadian biology thing, when we look at gastrointestinal secretions in general, like gastric acid, pancreatic enzymes, insulin production, all of these are at a high level during earlier stages of the day, which support the whole theory that we're more inclined to con consume larger meals in the early stages of the day than we are later in the day. So people kind of, obviously it comes down to adherence and people are going to, you get some people that are more inclined to eat their largest meals at the end of the day. But, you know, based on our, what we know about our circadian biology, it actually makes sense to have our largest meals earlier on. So that whole notion that breakfast is the most important meal of the day is technically correct. Um, in the sense that we want to make that a big meal. Um, but the it also calls into question when people Im implement fasting it makes more sense to fast during the later hours of the day and through the night and then consume food in the earlier hours of the day than it does to fast throughout most of the day and consume a lot of food at night um, if you want to set yourself up to process that food well of course but it's um yeah it, i mean it's basically if, if you're considering trying to optimize your feeding window in relation to sleep you want to basically put it probably as far away from sleep as you can and if you're someone who wakes up a lot during the night you want to probably call into um question how close you're eating to bed um and, and probably change that but like what me and cal tend to suggest you know trying to get well i know i do i'm pretty sure cal does <laughs> but at least i would say on my plans for people that try and get it at least one and a half to three hours away from your make sure your last meal is at least one and a half to three hours away from your sleep time um just to allow that 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 food to basically clear your stomach and if you're someone who is unable to do that due to your schedule you might want to consider um implementing foods that are easier to digest and that are going to pass through the stomach quicker and that won't require the same level of gastric acid secretion so if you have a big old steak and something like that before you go to bed and you and, the, and that's like 40 minutes before you go to bed, you're probably going to find that you get less deep sleep, um, which is going to mean you're experiencing less physiological repair and all that jazz. So it's worth considering. I hope that answered it though. That was pretty deep. <laughs> good answer. That was a good answer. I think one of the things that people struggle with there is just habits and eating habits. People yeah. need to promote satiety at later hours of the day when hunger and food focus is generally higher mm. and i've found that particularly implementing that with clients when they've been in such a long a long habit of eating large and more satiating meals at night when they're typically more focused on food and, and less busy with other tasks is quite challenging but it does have its rewards for sure mm. yeah i think the same guy asked does this add back into getting nutrition from pre-broken down substances and that's kind of what i said you know if you're if you're someone who can't adhere to that earlier uh, earlier eating window, then I would probably suggest that. But you've also got to take into account some of those pre-digested or pre-broken down substances will have quite a drastic effect on blood sugar um, due to, you know, you consider whey protein alone being quite insulinogenic. So you might find that you get destabilizations in uh, blood glucose levels across the night, which could then disturb sleep in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a tricky one, but ideally, it, you, it's the whole, you know, morning lark and night owl 
thing of like some people claim they function better at night and and what we're actually finding is through the study of circadian biology that that whole night owl thing is a little bit of a myth because people are it's more of an indication that you've got a disrupted circadian rhythm than it is that you just generally function better because as we you know what we've found over the years is that you know human beings are you know more inclined to function earlier in the day and wind down during the night so if you find that you're yeah you're you're, that's kind of flipped on its head and you're waking up feeling a bit like dazed and not that well rested and and not able to function well then by the time the evening comes things are picking up you can be pretty damn sure that you've got some work to do with regards to resetting your circadian rhythms basically um which is which is a tough thing to do and that's where the whole habit is you know changing habits is is such a difficult thing because that's what underpins it difficult though yeah good question yeah um where was the uh where was the one about um food digesting um oh yeah so next yeah i think the same guy this was in your questions but he said in terms of pre-stage nutrition pre-workout food etc there's no technical question oh so here you go i think it's really so he said realistically how long does it take for what you and just to have an impact on your body in terms of pre-stage nutrition, pre-workout food, etc. Um, so, like, from the scientific understanding of the gastrointestinal system, like I just said, like it will take two, three hours, provided you have adequate levels of gastric acid. It's going to take like two, three hours for food to clear your stomach. Yeah. Um, obviously, certain things can be absorbed through your stomach, not a hell of a lot. Um, especially things like carbohydrates um like certain carbohydrates can but they've got to be very very simple um but like protein fats um most carbohydrates that you're not going to get that absorption until you're you know most of the way through your small intestine which takes quite a few hours the but you know from an anecdotal perspective there's a lot of competitors out there that will be able to say actually that's not the case they'll eat something relatively close to a sh- going on stage and they'll gain some sort of benefit and whether that benefits from you know an increase in catecholamines and just general stress i don't know but i mean cal's definitely going to be able to speak about that and what he's experienced with clients mm, i think because the proximity of um feeding relative to like peaking someone off stage is going to be related to their ability to manage stress at that moment and their ability to realistically partition that food you know someone's highly stressed pre-show and as luke said about you know, the, the impact the nervous system and the autonomic nervous system will have on your ability to actually get get that food into the right places is going to play a big role in what you're what you're feeding. Now, but I, I still think there's there's big there's there's two there's two kind of primary focuses. There's one saying, you know, we, we need to minimize any GI stress pre-stage so they have control of the midsection, they can pose properly. There's two saying, you know, realistically pre-stage within like six to eight hours pre-show the foods that you're eating need to be very specific if you want any of those foods to actually do anything for the time frame that you have available so like we were saying before you know heavier like um proteins that are going to take longer to break down like protein for me even like two or three days out will go to an absolute minimum uh, like show day i won't have any protein at all um if, if not very very little amounts and just minimizing the gi's stress on like what's having to be processed as much as possible but i still think there's like a massive benefit of putting somebody in a position where they partition 
carbohydrates effectively the morning of, especially if they need, they need to, to fill out, so to speak. Because um, generally speaking, if it's a well-managed prep and they've reduced um, stress as much as possible over those final few weeks of prep and they're able to regulate the autonomic nervous system, they're going to be very responsive to food in that state. So even putting in small amounts will have quite a remarkable impact on their ability to hold fullness on stage and, and pump up appropriately. And obviously electrolytes, potassium, sodium comes into play as well and, and hydration as well. Um, I think one of the interesting things that will be like a, a commonly misunderstood segment on there is like people's loading strategies of, oh, I'm going to use carbohydrates or I'm going to, you know, I, I've, uh, I've acquired the fullness I want now. So I know I'm going to reduce carbohydrates and add in fats because fats hold fullness. And all we're doing there is just controlling blood glucose. And if someone wants to retain fullness through a peak, like all you need to do is manage blood glucose effectively and keep a monitor of that. And that's pretty much all you need to do. So the, the ability for you to like effectively capitalize on your nutrition pre-show or pre-shoot, pre-show or pre-shoot will simply be their ability to digest it in the time frame they have available, creating no GI stress, obviously chewing their food, making sure the food selection is easy to break down and making sure like we're controlling blood glucose and the nervous system in a capacity where we know that food can be partitioned effectively. And like obviously assisted athletes can have like the, they have the ability to use exogenous insulin, but like, even if you're, even if you're like um, using a shitload of Nova rapid and you're using exogenous insulin to partition this food, if you're still in a stressed state, it doesn't matter. Like you still have the same problem. Mm. Mm. Very true. I think the same same kind of thing applies for the pre-training scenario. Like I I've been doing this for the last in probably nearly a year. Like I've been making my pre my pre-training food meal is like close to four hours before I train, and it's a decent meal, but it's you know it's think enough time to clear my stomach, and you know I'm eating it in a way that's going to make sure that there's maximal efficiency with respect to my digestive system and since then training performance has massively increased in, in terms of like gastrointestinal comfort during training like there's times still where i'll have to cram it in like an hour and a half or two hours before and it's a massive difference and there'll be a lot of people out there that have been kind of you know e eating in really close to training for a long time and not knowing the difference and then when you kind of extend that time frame a little bit more you'll notice what i'm talking about here and that you'll probably find your your training ability improves because you're not your digestive system essentially not having to fight your your musculoskeletal system for blood flow um but the um you know speaking of the, of the protein side of things as well like cow dropping protein um leading into competitions you know you've also got to consider most people at that point in prep they're going to have compromised sleep they're going to be very stressed their ability to actually um, produce gastric acid is going to have decreased anyway due to that because one, that's one of the things we know happens when sleep deprivation occurs and when high stress occurs. So in terms of generally just doing a very smart thing there and adapting to that level of stress, reducing protein intake is a damn good idea. Um, so, you know, I mean, and we, we know that, you know, people aren't going to be consuming, you know, a fucking 20-ounce steak pre-stage. <laughs> you know, and, and people that do there's a lot of people that will finish a show and they'll go and have a state like that and they'll they'll generally report pretty messed up feelings in their gut because you know they're, they're not in the environment isn't in a, in an appropriate 
um, where it's not an appropriate environment to process that level of protein because um, our body's not in the right position. So it's, you know, it's a it's a very you know difficult situation to be in. But when you understand a lot of this stuff, it makes it a little bit more simple. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I reckon that answers that one. So basically, I think the question there is the answer to that is pre pre stage. You got to work on on managing blood glucose and not pushing protein as high as people think is necessary because at that point it's not needed anyway. Like when you consider fats and carbs, they're probably going to be the guys that can have more effect, more of a profound effect on how you present your physique anyway. Um, and then pre workout, you just want to make sure you're not eating too close to the workout perimeter. Boom. And that goes post workout as well. So like people finishing training and then 10 minutes later going and having a full whole food meal of protein, maybe wait. You know, I, I tell my clients and athletes to wait like at least 40 minutes to an hour um, to, to actually consume that. If they're going to process that now and, then, and in that time frame, they'll be doing stuff that promotes parasympathetic activity to make sure that digestive capacity is at a good level. So, yeah. I think especially like pre-show or pre-shoot, if you're cramming in food in that last remaining, you know, few hours of prep to solve the, you know, to create a look, there's probably something that's gone wrong along the process in your actual peak in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So given that you mentioned it, someone's asked, everyone is measuring blood glucose now. Is it really that necessary or important and why? I think it's, it's valuable for everyone. It's just your willingness to track markers and spend time doing so and learning about it and sticking yourself every morning Pinning yourself every morning yeah yeah <laughs> I, 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 th I think blood glucose is probably one of the most valuable markers i'll use with with clients but yeah. it's also one of the most invasive and annoying markers to use as well yeah um also quite expensive and people have to keep buying answers and shit yeah 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 very valuable like that that will have the impacts and it will tell us on like di multiple different levels what's going on internally and physiologically not only from a sleep perspective but from a stress perspective from glucose partitioning perspective like there's a huge benefit to, to tracking those markers um it's probably just the last marker i'd start tracking with a client in the grand scheme of things mm. for most mm. people mm. Um, but it is it, i think is it is it necessary no is it like does everyone have to do it no is it very valuable fuck yes yeah and if you're willing to do it you'll get a lot from it and especially when it comes to allowing us as the coach to understand what's going on with your body especially when you've got someone who you know is presenting with relative insulin resistance and, and you've you, you're unable to spot that and then the minute you start tracking blood glucose you're like oh shit that's what's been going wrong um and i think i think it's very valuable you know I th it's, it's difficult if someone's there's value in both ends of the spectrum i find if someone's prepping for a competition tracking blood glucose is a very good thing to do they're, they're less likely to be worrying about insulin resistance probably because they're not going to be dealing with the same levels of inflammation but it is a good mark for when you're probably getting into rounds of overtraining and then you know under recovering whatever it is but then if someone's pushing weight up in an off season i think there's one of the most valuable markers there for knowing when to pull back with food intake and take it you know take a step back and reassess and re-establish optimal glucose tolerance which is something that i've had a couple of clients with recently which is 
you know, so, and it's been quite, one of them was very sharp and sudden where sudden, you know, everything was all good. And then within like a week, he, his blood glucose readings took a jump and we you know, did a glucose tolerance test and it turned out he was actually presenting with insulin resistance suddenly. It was a bit, and it was pretty random. Obviously there's probably something else going on there, which we're still trying to figure out, but it, that just proves how, how valuable a marker it is really. So all the people like seeing it and being like, well, that's lame. You don't need to do that. Fuck you. It's true. It's just being more conscientious and diligent, basically. And I think, I think, and it's one of the things, like you know, the whole what we have available to us nowadays is is athletes and coaches and just general individuals. You know, it's it's pretty cool, and it it makes sense to take advantage of it. And like we we say, it's expensive. It's not expensive. It costs like ten quid for a glucometer and maybe. 10 quid for a decent amount of lancets and, and testing strips and it will you know it could be the difference between that extra few percent of optimizing your physique which is pretty valuable Very. Very. yeah hmm. so what now fascia, fascia lines and resistance strength curves and how to program accordingly did, did someone just ask us about fascia lines i think um i'll make this answer quick fascial lines the the fascial system is a legit thing we don't have as much control over it as people think i don't think it's worth programming for this is obviously our opinion you can tell us to shovel up our ass for sure um but when you understand how fascia works fascia doesn't really work independently of anything it's kind of it's in the same way that the muscular system is innervated by the nervous system that's that's what fascia is it doesn't do anything on its own if you've got issues with your fascia or fascial lines whatever you want to call it you've probably got to negotiate with the nervous system as opposed to doing anything else i think programming for the for the fascial lines i think i don't think my understanding is there yet i think it's it's you know, there's certain people that obviously push that and fair play, but I don't think it's actually that valuable. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I just don't think the it's it's as appropriate as people think. I think I think we, we there's far more um, evidence to suggest that we should spend more time focusing on the muscular system and the nervous system, and then you know, take into account the fascial system, but understand that that's not going to do anything on its own. Um, and also we have far less access to it. Um, so yeah, I think. Agreed. I, mean, I, I, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that one anymore. Not yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just our opinion. So if we're wrong, we're wrong. But I mean, show me, show me a lot of research on that and I'll show you a thousand times more research in the opposite direction. <laughs> Um, the uh, so what else is there? Uh, how, uh, how long to program heavy dead squats in a program? Would you ever do them last in a in a in a, in a session? Uh, probably not. Yeah, I think that that's not. How long to program? It depends. Would you ever do them last in a session? Yes. it's just just like what you're using them for in the first place and the stimulus you want to get out of that yeah and and it's the thing about you know 
there's no magic associated with those movements you know ultimately it's just another it just permits us another opportunity to load our our the, you know certain muscles in a certain range and and you know whether you do that at the beginning or the end fair play if you want more output um the you may you might want to put them further closer to the beginning of the session if you know it, it very much depends um yeah i think that's 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 the answer to that one is it depends <laughs> um do you want to talk about blood work yeah i just got the uh, question up there. <clears throat> so one of the questions is what hormones health markers should you establish in bloods for obtaining hormonal baseline so uh, by hormones i presume they're talking about like thyroid and steroid hormones um i imagine uh, so for well, the the big key players that you'll find in blood work will be, well, because it's it's blood, it's going to be bound um, testosterone, SHBG, and then for a male, you probably want to get an idea of what what's happening with estrogen and prolactin if you're thinking about introducing anabolics. <clears throat> get some form of representation of where your physiological baseline is for testosterone and its count, and then essentially move from there into a super physiological range whilst keeping control of other markers the higher testosterone goes generally the the higher adversity will be within the cycle in terms of other systems within the body starting to become irregular um, but like on a normal blood panel like if you were looking at right we're going to look at the basics of what we're, we're looking for before we want to implement a cycle if someone's unassisted then red and white blood cells c-reactor protein hba1c kidney and liver markers um obviously lipids are going to play a big part so Total cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, HDL, and the amount of LDL oxidation. Uh, have an appreciation of where, where thyroid function is at, TSH, T4 to T3 conversion, and then the steroid hormones. Uh, that would be like the big ones, the big ones for me. Uh, and generally speaking, like if somebody is taking care of everything else, things should be relatively quote unquote normal. Uh, but if they're not, then it's obviously not going to be an optimal place to start introducing anabolics because they're only going to go further south from there. So you want to address these things first. Mm. Um, and then as you implement, if you're going to implement exogenous hormones, then you've got some form of baseline you work with before they were added. And then working on the, the active half-life of the drug that you just implemented and the time it's going to take for that drug to reach kind of peak saturation in the blood. Uh, then you need to remeasure those markers again within say, you know, for a testosterone ester, deeper testosterone, it would be like five active half-lives. So maybe like five weeks later, retest the same test and see what markers have changed, see where estrogen is at, see where prolactin is at, see where testosterone is gone um, and, and go from there. So it's just constant monitoring. Mm. Um, there was also, have you got anything to add to that? Well, I was going to say, like, on the when it comes to like managing that, it comes back to sleep, managing inflammation, managing yeah. health. You know, if someone's got poor sleep, we know their steroid hormones and thyroid hormones are going to be impacted pretty, pretty substantially. If someone's got messed up gut health and dysbiosis, we know that thyroid conversion is going to be inhibited to some degree. If someone's uh, liver function isn't optimal, we know that there can be a buildup of of toxins through there that's going to disrupt everything so you know it's, you know manage that stuff first and and, and while on cycle a lot i mean that that's one thing that I, I wanted to bring up you know people you know when we're considering drug use people consider the impact that orals have on liver but they very there's very little 
you know, there's there's the view that oh, injectables don't put the same stress on the liver. Your liver still has to process all that eventually. And if your, you know, phase one, phase two, and phase three detoxification pathways aren't up to scratch, you're still going to get issues that are largely due to poor liver function, even from using injectables. So I'd say one of the biggest things people can do when they're considering going on cycle, but even when on cycle, is support your liver, regardless. Agreed. And then just knocking on that, someone um, who remains anonymous has asked, is PCT really necessary when running lower doses for most of the year, like 300 milligrams? So PCT standing for post-cycle therapy, if you are using 300 milligrams of an exogenous hormone, the key word there being exogenous, you know, we've got to think that any dose of testosterone is going to start to suppress the HPG axis, which then results in diminishing spermatogenesis. So you have a, you know extreme suppression of LH and FSH. Um, and when you remove those exogenous hormones without adding in some form of therapy to create the signaling response again and amplify that through a PCT, those hormones will remain low for a long period of time. So um, if you're using any exogenous hormone that's working along those signaling lines, then you need to sort yourself out after you come off. Simple as that. Yeah, it's also, if it's 100 milligrams, if it's 300 milligrams, if it's two grams, doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and, and Ralph mentioned this sort of thing. For those of us that are concerned with having kids when they're older, you know, if you're, you know, if you go on cycle and you go on for a few months, come off, you're probably going to, you know, reestablishing normal HPTA function is going to be relatively simple, probably provided you PCT correctly, push it to a year. It's going to be a little bit harder, push it to two years. You're pushing your luck. So if someone, you know, goes on for a long time and, th- and then they decide, oh, I'm going to come off and, and try and get everything back in check, it would make sense to be one of those people that cycles on and off more frequently if that's a concern of yours. If someone's like, oh, I don't want kids, don't worry about it. <laughs> maybe maybe the whole um, blast and cruise thing is, is more appropriate. Um, but um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, it all depends on the you know what the goal is but it's definitely something to consider like Cal just mentioned that you know you diminish spermatogenesis for too long you're gonna struggle with getting it all reinstated and it's whether it's more important to you or not yeah where, where the- just, just from like a more anecdotal perspective I know I want kids within the next like three to five years so my competitive plans and my bodybuilding plans will integrate that into that time frame like I'm not going to be continuing to take gear or the amount of gear i'm about to take for that amount of time and then once i've had kids i'll start i'll start it again yeah so like just be smart and think longer term as opposed to just the immediate yeah absolutely and that yeah that's the same it's one of my concerns as well like it i'm never going to push it too too ridiculously and i'll always probably make sure I'm, i'm coming off and getting things ticking back over because it's you know or kicking kick started again because it's it's a you know, so it's a day. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever want to not be able to have kids just because I wanted 10 pounds more muscle or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that haven't considered that yet and then it's too late by the time they have. So consider it now, people. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, while we're on that, let's, let's jump into the someone, someone asked you, um, well, we'll answer these ones and I can finish on the creatine question because that was pretty good. What age did you start anabolics? You may as well, may as well start, talk about that. Well, 
Funnily enough, Luke, as a qualified fitness professional, I'm not actually allowed to answer that question, but the truth <laughs> age nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, we both got attacked by someone like when we were similar ages of 12. I think Cal was 12, I was nine or something like that. Or maybe it's the other way around. Someone just came at us with a, with a needle of trend and uh, the rest was history. <laughs> no. But yeah, I mean, that, that one isn't necessarily that important. What's important is whatever age someone starts, um, you, you do so alongside someone who knows what they're doing. Um, that was basically why we wanted to bring that one up. Was that, on on yeah. that topic, I'd also put in the fact that based on um, the inquiries that we get and the people that either are assisted or are looking to be assisted very, very soon, like the amount of people that want to jump on gear before establishing any form of consistency or optimization in all other aspects of bodybuilding is crazy. And like, you need to sort everything out first before resulting in, you know, opting for, for, for the hormone, you know, you know, route, because you have like a ridiculous amount of progress that can be made from just sorting everything out before using hormones. And the best bodybuilders and our best clients now are the ones that we've been coaching for, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months before they use, you know, before they decide to make the choice of using steroids. And that's because they spent like a year or two years or three years, like optimizing everything else first. And then when it adds in, A, you have control of what's going on, but B, like you, they'll just excel because everything else is covered. Mm. And it, you know, the, there's, yeah, there's a lot of rushing and um, I think people, I, I said it, we were a guest on, on, uh, Joe Jeffrey and Austin Stout's podcast the other the other day, and I think that will be launched. But I said it on there, like gear use should be the the icing or the cherry on what should already be a, an immaculate cake. Um, not not before that. So if if you haven't got training in check, if you haven't got sleep in check, if you haven't got your nutrition in check, gut health, digestion, like stress management, you know, if if that's not all in check, don't even think about it. Um, because that stuff at the end of the day will have much more of a profound effect anyway. Yeah. Um, and you, you run far more risk of fucking yourself up if you, if you prematurely start messing with your hormones before you've got all that stuff in check. Because like we spoke about, if someone's you know, dealing with high levels of inflammation because of compromised sleep and they've got poor gut health and they put a massive load on their liver to then have to process a lot of exogenous hormone, then you know expect a lot of side effects and expect a lot of skewed blood work <laughs> it's pretty pretty straightforward really i just say generally speaking unless your unless your bodybuilding goals are aligned with the fact that you have you know longevity in mind at all times like you shouldn't be bodybuilding yeah. <laughs> as an assisted athlete you shouldn't be using gear because the the two will only intertwine positively if you have a consideration for your health long term if you don't, then and you'll be reckless. Then you're just going to end up paying the price. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Yeah. And, and and yeah, I mean, we all know the people that have paid that price. Well, you know, we, we all, all the people that follow bodybuilding know that you get reckless and you pay for it. Um, so I reckon last question was it basically a couple? Uh, well, actually, no, a couple. One of them I can't really answer because it's it's medical related. But someone said, um. Do you need to take creatine with carbohydrates for uptake in cells? Um, no. Um, creatine does have an effect on 
um, glucose up. Um, I thought it'd be good. I, I spoke to a client about this because I really want to do a whole podcast on creatine. And I was saying, I'll get someone on and then or we'll get someone on. And then we, uh, I started digging into it and I reckon we could just do a big podcast on that ourselves because, you know, it's the thing. All the research is out there. It's all pretty straightforward. And then there's a lot about creatine that people don't understand because they look at it under their sports performance microscope only and they don't consider a lot of the other effects that creatine has. So we know that creatine has a pretty powerful effect with respect to, you know, enhancing ATP recycling and energy production and training performance that way. You've also got to consider, I'll, I'll keep this brief because we've been quite a while, but like, it's an interesting one though. So just, yeah, I'll give it a brief now, then we'll do an episode on it at some point because it's cool. But like, you've also got to consider that methylation um, is a, uh, is massively helped by creatine um, methylation being um, you know is essentially a very prolific powerful form of cellular regulation um, and it's you know trying to keep it simple methylation is basically when we have like methyl groups and they basically attach to a biomolecule um, and it leads to the kind of managing of a lot of gene expression, um, kind of controlling homocysteine levels. Uh, it's a, it, it, when it's applied at the levels of our genes, it's responsible for things like growth factor production, hormones, neurotransmitters, metabolic mediation, um, structural components of cells. So it's, it's, it basically does a hell of a lot. Um, and creatine is one of the, uh, key drivers behind this um, and um, in the sense of like creatine is one of the most costly um, molecules to to recycle through is needed for methylation it's also one of the most costly molecules to recycle for methylation so if we supplement with with creatine it, it helps drive that process which methylation in and of itself is actually going to increase anabolism as well um, so people you know, if you're looking to build muscle, you, you you know that trying to optimize methylation is a pretty key thing, which is, you know, I've actually put creatine in, in all my, I'll give people like a foundational list of supplements. Creatine is in there now um, because of all this stuff. But it's also when we consider the oxidative stress component of training, creatine helps buffer that to a very large degree. Um, it also directly increases the expression of IGF-1 and two to a lesser degree, but IGF, IGF one being like the most powerful of the insulin like growth factors, uh, creatine has been found to express that pretty, pretty, uh, comprehensively, uh, and, uh, or pretty prolifically. Um, but then on the, on the carbohydrate uptake front, the, um, what they found is creatine can actually improve glucose tolerance, um, by, like increasing and maintaining the expression of uh, glute 4 transporter so well, glucose 4 transporter or glucose transporter type 4 i think is the correct way to say it um but specifically on skeletal muscle so where um that will help with insulin uptake uh, glucose uptake and, and you know insulin is going to help with that insulin like growth factor is going to do that as well creatine supplementation has been found to to directly increase that mechanism um, and whether that's from the increased production of insulin like growth factor they're, they're not entirely sure but they know that creatine supplementation has increased that 
Um, but yeah, in general, you know, creatine is a pretty important thing for us to be supplementing with. Um, you know, it heightens methylation, improves glucose uptake, improves energy performance and energy capacity, improves brain function because, you know, energy production even at a neural level is going to help with, with brain function as well. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty key one to, to get in. But I wouldn't say that you necessarily need carbohydrates to support creatine's uptake. Um, but it might not hurt. I don't think it will inhibit it. It won't hurt. I think um, it ultimately it would make sense to include creatine around times you're going to consume a lot of carbohydrate anyway, and whether it's that the carbohydrate is going to help with creatine uptake or the creatine is going to help with carbohydrate up, uptake. Who knows? Um, I'm sure they probably do know. I just haven't found the paper yet. But anyway, we, we know that that's the case. Um but yeah, I mean, I think another thing to mention is how, um, you know, all these these factors have been, you know, these are all things that dip with aging and, and they've shown that when people, that as they're aging, they supplement with creatine, they actually, they tend to improve general health um, accordance with all these these areas that I've just mentioned. So it's, um yeah, it's a cool supplement and one that people should... Uh, should definitely, um, definitely probably put into their regular supplement uh, regime. I think the, the, the study, there's a study which I'll try and I might share on my social media or something where they they measured uh, um, the IGF one expression. This was one of the studies. There's a few out there, but they they had like obviously we know that people tend to supplement with five grams of creatine monohydrate a day. That eventually will increase, you know, will lead. To saturation and, and you don't need to do the whole loading protocol that people suggest but in this study they had people taking like 21 grams a day um so you know whether that's how much you need for the rgf1 expression i'm not sure i think there's studies where they've shown you can get the rgf1 expression with less but there's also for the record not shown to be any issues associated with kidney function or anything like that with 21 grams so if people are like oh my god I can't take 21 grams of creatine a day because my kidneys are shut down. You'd probably be fine. Um, but the, um, I don't think that people should take 21 grams of creatine because that isn't generally supported. It was just used in this study. So if people read this study and think that the best way to get jacked is through creatine um, and taking that 21 grams a day, I wouldn't do it because it might be a bit of a waste of time. Um, and I think on, on the carbohydrate, say again? Take 21 grams of something else and you'll get big. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the carbohydrate uptake side of things, like while creatine probably helps with that, I think there's a reason that creatine isn't in a lot of the GDAs that people talk yeah. about. Because, yeah, it has an effect, but it's not as prolific as some of the other things. So it's, um, you know, don't, don't go crazy with it. But question, and I think we'll get a topic, an episode done on that. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a big one that I've actually, um, somebody asked me in FLF, I think it was Claudio asked me, uh, he'd seen some, some of his blood work and it was um, liver enzymes or kidney enzymes were elevated or something like that. And uh, he was saying, oh, is it, is it okay for me to take creatine? So it'd be interesting to go into the benefits, but also like what you can find from a research perspective in terms of the adversity on health when dosed correctly. Mm. 
Mm. Um, I think I think like that you know the methylation. So if if we weren't able to methylate, we'd die. <laughs> and um, you know the fact that creatine supports that pretty damn well. Um, people should uh, should you know be able to say quite confidently that creatine is a pretty healthy thing to take. Um, but you know you, you get a lot of people that don't necessarily agree with that. Um, yeah. There's a lot of statements that are made about creatine that is just general bullshit. Um, and it's, you know, that's pretty much always underpinned by not really understanding it or looking at it purely from a perspective of sports performance. And, you know, all of these things extend further, you know. Anyway, should we leave it there? That was a pretty lengthy episode. That was pretty chunky. Pretty chunky. Was it? Was that an hour? Oh, yeah, over an hour. Yeah. I hope, hope that was good, people. I hope that was good. I hope that was great. Q&A 8 wrapped up. So, so yeah, so someone's asked on that, uh, have you ever seen supplementing creatine cause jaundice? I haven't. Uh, and he said, I've been told I have Gilbert syndrome. Uh, I haven't, and but I'm not really licensed to speak about that. So apologies, sir. But um, I would talk to a medical practitioner about that. Mm. Speaking of which, I think we should we should say the old uh, you know all the all the information in this episode has been uh, for educational purposes only. It's not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, prevent any disease and before influencing anything we've spoken about, always consult with your medical practitioner because we're just here to entertain y'all. Only. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anybody wants to do a, uh, a meetup in New York next week, holler. Oh yeah, because me and Luke are in town. Yeah, uh, got a very, uh, very important business meeting to attend, which we thought would uh, would be required to go to a different country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was easier for us to meet in New York than it was for Cal to come to Kent. So. Hey. That's the answer. So uh, we've decided to go to New York instead. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Um, Can't wait. That's pretty much it, mate. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for listening, people. Lovely. We will. Uh, we'll speak to you all very, very soon. Thank you for your continued support. Yeah. Uh, see you later. Take it easy. <laughs>